From ACAST Studios and Western Sound, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 11, Second Time In. Okay, Joe, I have a question. Uh, In Episode 9, we had talked about how you were working at your job at the restaurant, and you had other employees working on your time cards, and how that gave you kind of an alibi for a lot of the times that you would go robbing. But then you also said how you took your friend to go rob for you, your friend who it turns out looks a lot like you, and he got ID'd as you. But it turns out when they went to check the cameras, he was four inches shorter. And that made the FBI think that you had this double out there. And I assume it threw the eyewitness identification under suspicion. Yeah, I mean, it was actually when I called Cordis, because I, I had explained to my dad and Cordis, I had not been in that bank. I swore in my mother's grave. I had not been in that bank. So when Cordis went to Special Agent Cordis, that is, went to go look at the film, he call, I called him, and he says, okay, Joe, I'm going to tell you something right now, and you need to pay attention. These women were robbed, and within a couple hours, they both falsely identified you, and they had just been robbed. The women we've been going to, you robbed 13 months ago, 10 months ago, 9 months ago, 8 months ago. That makes all of those suspect too. Because if these two women who had just been robbed by you could be so wrong right now, all of those are suspect. He's basically saying, this is your argument with your lawyer. You need to tell him that you got a double. But wouldn't they just go to your manager at the restaurant and say... Did he really sign these time cards? They didn't go to my managers. Why they did that is on them. I have no clue. Except to say, if they had gone to her, I can't say what she would have said. But I know one thing. They would have gone to her and say, is this your signature there? And she would have been able to say legally, yes. That's my signature. And that's all they're going to want. They're not going to say... Hey, but could he have had Clementa in the back work for him that day? And like, mm-hmm. have you, like, they're not going to go to her. They just need to verify one thing. This is a piece of evidence. Is that your signature? And she would have said, yeah. Now, if they had pushed her further, she would have then either had to make a choice. Joe didn't work that day. I remember for sure that it was Clementa who worked on his time card. And so now the company is liable <laughs> for its own crimes. It opens mm. up. And I don't know that she would have done that. And there's no way they could have proven that Clementa worked that day because she signed it right there. That's it. And that's all she needs to say. So suddenly you're not going to jail for 16 or even 30 banks. banks. I'm going for three. For three. So they say, listen, we got you on these three. That's you in the photo. And not only that, you're the right height (laughs) in this one. And you don't have time cards backing up saying that you're not there. These three, we got you on. We believe we can take you to trial and we win. You want to risk trial or do you want to just plead out? And I was like, where do I sign? going down for what I was looking at is possibly 30 years when they were talking about it in the beginning to eight years. I was like, hell yeah, let's do this right now. Easy choice. Easy call.
Part 1. Falling in. Joe, what happens after you're arrested and sentenced? Like, where are you staying? Where are you going? What's the process? They drive me down to the Metropolitan Detention Center to deposit my ass in jail now. Now, bail's revoked. I'm going to go to prison. And I'd been on the run. And when I was on the run, I played golf uh, over in Pasadena. And, uh, Typical on-the-run activities. Yeah, a lot of golf. I played all over the place, but there's one place in Pasadena which was also where helicopters would go over the, the golf course to land and get gas and come back into San Gabriel Valley. So <laughs> I'd be hiding under trees. I kept thinking every helicopter was after me because I'd been pulled over by helicopters before. I'd been tracked by helicopters before. I was f- so scared of helicopters. And so I'm in a holding cell, and then I hear a helicopter outside. And my body freezes. Like, what the fuck? Oh, and then I realized, oh, I'm already caught. I'm already caught. I don't have to. And then one thing I think I remember is like, oh, thank fucking God. For the next 8 to 12 years, I don't have to worry about a helicopter. <laughs> like, my body was like, I could let go of fear of a helicopter. And I also chuckled because in that moment I realized, oh, that's where that phrase, you were rescued, you weren't arrested, comes from. Because <laughs> I was like, I felt like I was more rescued in that moment from the fear and anxiety of being a fugitive. And like, oh, I could, I could settle down. Confinement is a good thing. I don't have to worry about being caught ever again. So there must be some kind of like, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you're caught. On the other hand, you're caught. Yeah, that's exactly. And if you think that, that means you're the kind of prisoner who's rescued, not arrested. Mm. You know, and that you, we insult you. And so I was realizing, oh, that might be me. (laughs) So. What else is going on in the detention center? I mean, while you're waiting to be transferred to Lompoc. They throw another guy in there. Archie. Older dude, man. Like, 40s, got gray hair. He's older. He's an older guy. Nice, sweetheart of a man. I'm like, man, what are you doing in here? He's like, man, I was robbing banks. I'm like, yeah, really? He goes, yeah, man, my brother-in-law gave me up. Um, but he goes up to the, we go up to the same unit upstairs. And I'm able to, like, start getting him and say, dude, stand, stay with me. We'll be friends. So I get a good roommate. I get a good cellmate. And he's a guy who's done time at Lompoc. So when you're with a cellmate, like, he knew a lot of guys already. So, he like, he could introduce my cellmate's all right guy. And I made, like, I carried myself and conducted myself not like a shot caller at all, but, like, I've done time in the state. Uh, guys could see it was kind of serious because it was quiet, super quiet, mind my own business, finding out what's the what. And then there was this one guy, it was an older African-American dude, and played chess with him sometimes. I don't remember his name. He had been in Lompoc. And he said, I'm going to tell you some things how to survive Lompoc. I'll never forget this one thing he said. If a guy yells at you and he says, hey, don't ever answer to hey. If you walk in the unit and people are calling you hey, Hey, you, 
and you turn around and you're looking at who, me? That's, if your head's on a swivel, that's going to show fear and panic and insecurity. So you just walk. That person wants to talk to you, make sure they come up in front of you. And they don't know you, and it's, hey, you, you don't know, man. You're like a broad, and they're like the construction workers, and they're just trying to get your attention. You just ignore them. He says, and if anyone kicks anything under your cell while um, your cell door is closed, your cell door is open, and somebody throws something in your cell, you kick it out. You don't even open it. It has nothing to do with you. Somebody wants to give you something, they give it to your hand because you don't know what you're opening and you don't know what you get yourself into. Those two pieces of information, I was like, I can work with that shit. But it made me feel like prison was going to be a thing where I was going to be catcalled and people were going to be sliding a lot of shit under my door. <laughs> I was like, oh, man, this sounds like a bad movie. So I get to Lompoc. First thing that happens is um, I'm in a van, actually. There's me and, like, four other guys. One of the guys I'll never forget, his name was Victor Ag. The reason I know is because he got arrested while we were doing time. He had escaped from the Metropolitan Detention Center when it was first opened. And I read about it. Like, six guys escaped. He's the only one who got away. And um, he gets arrested because a prostitute turned him in and said he was trying to rape her. So when he comes back to jail now, he's not just a bank robber. He's a rapist. And everyone's like, oh, now you're in trouble because you get labeled a rapist on the street. Now people can, ironic, this is one of the stupidest things, like you can get raped in prison because you're a raper. And he's sitting next to me now, driving up to, to Lompoc. But when we drive up and uh, we, um, Victor and I end up in the same unit, they give you in reception, they give you your blankets and your pillow and your clothes and your towels and go find your unit. Our unit was K-Unit. Step out into this main line, and this is like this, the, the main corridor that all the units are connected to, it's like this giant artery, is, uh, I don't know, 20 feet wide. It looks like you could park two 18-wheelers in it. It's tall, high, and wide. Maybe three 18 you know what I mean? It's like a long, big corridor. Um, and you turn right, and that's all. I, I, I leave the reception, go into this corridor, and it's a bunch of guys walking around. The guard says, here, you got this unit. You got this cell over here. I go to the, the cell, and I get the top bunk in a cell, and there's a red handkerchief over the light in the cell. Like it's a brothel. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? So I go to a Mexican guy, a little Mexican dude. I'm like, his name's Shorty. I say, hey, man. I just drove up, man, from L.A. I don't want to be in this guy's cell. He's going, eh, no, no, let's figure it out. So he makes some moves, and he gets me in the cell right next to him with a guy named Angel. And, uh, yeah, we become road dogs. Turns out he knows a lot of people. His best friend in the prison is a member of the Mexican Mafia an old guy and they walked a yard together the guy's name's Tawa so I get to hang out with them sometimes long story short there's another Mexican mafioso who hangs out with Tawa his name's Dagwood based on an old I don't know if you remember the guy, there was Dagwood Bumstead is an old comics 
character like from the 40s and 50s. And Dagwood, this Mexican killer, and he had this big like mustache that looked like uh, Emiliano Zapata. Zapata mustache, right? So he's carrying it off like that. And he and I become friends. So people were like, oh shit, this new guy is hanging with Dagwood and he Angel hangs with Tawa. Like, I am now part of this, like, just vi- visually. You have to take me seriously, even though I'm brand new to the I don't know anybody. But in the feds, it's different. You know, it's not like it was in the state. It's just, I got entree. I'm at tables with guys who were Gotti, John Gotti, the Italian mobsters, best friends from when they were 10 years old, Mickey Boy, Paradiso. I'm like, I'm, I know these people. Angels loved by all these mobsters. So like, and I'm a, I'm a nice guy. So people are like, oh, he's all right too with us. Like, you know, just, I get along. Okay, that sounds very lucky. I mean, did you have to do anything to prove yourself to these guys? Like, what was your relationship with Angel like? Angel was a knucklehead. He was a guy who was constantly drunk driving to prison, meaning he would constantly offend people. Constantly. And so he'd come in and say, hey, man, get your knife, man. I got to go handle this thing over here. And he would go in some guy's cell and go whatever, and I'd have to stand outside the cell. And if it was going to happen, if something was going to happen, the other guy thought it was just him and Angel. He didn't realize I was standing up. <laughs> it was going to be me and Angel against him, right? So he would go in there, and Angel was good at making those guys just pee on themselves. Or in the in the vernacular, guys would just be like, no, 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 I don't want no problem. What are you talking about? I don't want to, whatever. He had this tactic where he would walk into a cell, throw a knife on the bed, and say, you don't like me, I don't like you, pick it up. Last one standing wins. And nobody would ever pick up that knife because they knew that he already had made peace with his maker. That guy did not have, he was not dialed up to that point yet. Didn't matter how tough he was, he wasn't going to pick up that knife. I was always there when Angel would do that kind of move. A couple times Angel um, went and extorted from guys, and I went in the cell with him, and we, you know, just... So he knew that I was his righteous road dog. Like, that's who we were. He backed my play a couple times when I needed I backed his play every time. And he was, I mean, he was a drunk-driving fulio. He was always getting in trouble. And people would tell me, dude, why are you his road dog? <laughs> that guy's got to get in trouble. I said, I don't get, you know, I don't choose my road dog. That's my road dog. Joe, when did you realize that you were becoming somebody else in prison, that you were taking on this new persona? Was there like a a specific incident or something that happened that made you think, I'm different now? Yeah. There was a point where I realized that I knew enough guys who were serious men, and I was known as somebody who now hung with the serious Mexican mobsters so that some permission was given to me now to dial up my game in terms of extortion and all these other things because people would, didn't want to mess with me. So I started taking advantage of that. The first time I ever did that was I betrayed a friend. It was this white guy, good friend of mine. His name was Danny. He was telling me this guy had just come to the prison who was in there for tax fraud. And he was in a minimum security prison, but he was caught at that prison doing tax fraud. <laughs> like, just doing some tax fraud stuff. 
Like he was in prison for tax fraud and he was still doing tax fraud. Yeah. So then he got sent to... So he got to, sent to maximum security penitentiary. Oh, he no. got more time. And so my friend said, basically, hey, man, I'm going to try and take this guy under our wing, my wing and see if I can get more money out of him. Me and my friend, Angel, we ended up basically saying, okay, you're going to work for us. <laughs> and, and, and got that guy to, like, make money for us. I'm embarrassed to say it, but just strong-armed him away from my friend's hustle. It was my friend's hustle. And then we made it our hustle. When this happened, did you think, like, did did you reflect on it and think, like, oh, shit, I'm a different person now? No. Or was it just kind of, it like, was, it, one long slope? It was, oh, I get to do this now. Hmm. I'm still a criminal. I'm coming up. I want to come up. I still wanted to get better. I wanted to get stronger. And it's like, oh, I get to do this now. I'm going to do it. That's how you That's how you come up. You just assume this door opens. You walk through it. I get to do this now. And there were no repercussions. He didn't come try to stab me. Now he just, like, was sheepish about it in a way. There was nothing he could do. Nothing really he could do. And so I got to be... You know, violent, menacing, threatening, full of guile. I also saw a lot of men, even in the Mexican mafia or any of these mafias, a lot of them got to their position by guile, by betraying people that then they're coming. Because a lot of those guys kill each other. They kill their brothers in their own mafias, right? So, like, I heard a story once about a guy who went dying and he was being stabbed in a cell and all he kept yelling out was, why, why? Like, he didn't even know what he, who, who, he, who he had injured. He had no idea what his infraction was, right? Joe in there was just, I understood the politics now. I understood what was going on. I understood the stakes. I was now playing with everybody around me who was a killer. And so I felt that I felt like, ah, I get this. This was the way I moved in the world. Like, I get this. This is where I belong. So dial it up, Joe. Go to the crazy. Go to the madness. Swim in the suspicious, the paranoia, the chaotic. I loved it. We'll be right back. Part 2. Blasts from the Past So back in the old neighborhood, back when Joe, Paul, their dad, and Brenda were all living in Burbank, there was this little crew that Joe and Paul used to hang out with. We've heard from Danny Shaw, one of Joe's good friends from the Burbank Times. He's been on a few times in the podcast. There was also Lisa. Lisa Perez. So when Joe left, I want to say he left roughly about 77. Lisa still lives in Burbank, not too far from where they all used to hang out together. Just one day, the family moved, and I did not know why they were moving, where they were moving to, and never heard from him after that. Fast forward 10 years to just about toward the end of Joe's bank robbery days. 
I met Joe by accident at the Glendale Galleria. My brother and I were shopping during Christmas. Hadn't seen him since the time he left Alhambra. And I said, hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? And you're trying to make like a huge conversation within a small period of time. And unbeknownst to me, his girlfriend was in the store also. So his... Joe's girlfriend? Yeah, Joe's girlfriend at the time. So she sees Joe talking to a girl. And yeah. And so she puts her arm around him. And he was like, oh, my gosh, this is my childhood friend that I haven't seen forever. And we were introduced to each other. And um, we were kind of... How's things going for you? How's things going for you? Unbeknownst to me, he was already starting his crime spree because, you know, he didn't share any of that with me at the time. And I didn't hear from him after we met. We didn't exchange phone numbers. We didn't do anything. Then, a few months later... I was home and my mom called me and said, Hey, um, Paul's here. And I'm like, Oh. I said, Well, I'll come over and say hi to him. And that's when Paul told me that his brother was in prison and that he had been um, convicted of robbing banks. And in the back of my mind, I said, I'm not surprised. In retrospect, when I gave it some extra thought and consideration, I started thinking, yeah, that's how desperate Joe was to Hmm. uh, maintain the yuppie lifestyle. This is Danny Shaw again. The easiest way and shortcut for him to get the money that he needs to sustain that lifestyle would have been robbing banks. So I wasn't really shocked at that. Huh. So when Paul told me that, um, he told me that Joe wanted to reach out to me. Why do you think he got back in touch with you? I think he was... He was lonely up in prison. Not a lot of people came up because, of course, after he got arrested and convicted, all of his uh, yuppie friends had deserted him. And he was just, uh, Joe's a social person. So the more people he can get to come up and visit him, the better his eight-year sentence will go. So he just reached out because he wanted a friend? Yep. I believe so because, yeah, he never really asked for anything except uh, for food out of the vending machine in the uh, visitor's center when we used to go visit. Or I'd come up there and visit him. And so, of course, the call comes in collect. And would you accept a call from a federal penitentiary? And I'm like, okay. And he's like, hi, how are you doing? I hear you're getting a divorce. And I said, I hear you're in prison. <laughs> Straight to the chase, I guess. Yeah, like, like he usually does. And so it was kind of like all that time that we missed went straight back to the neighborhood kids and who we were as friends. I was going through my divorce and he was in prison. And so it was kind of like um, a friendship that I think we both needed at the time. Um, So do you remember when you went to visit him the first time? Um, Yes. I went up there and I think when I went in there, Joe had uh, briefed me before to bring lots of quarters uh, and change for the vending machines because that was the highlight of his whole day was to be able to buy junk food 
um, out of the vending machines because he was on a standard bland prison diet and there was no fun in that. So I brought a whole mess of quarters and all that. And the first visit, like all the other visits, was was filled with a lot of laughter, a lot of uh, um, good times, a lot of reminiscing of past times. Right. When he sat down, it was kind of like a conversation of kids in in high school going back to that time. And uh, do you remember what you guys talked about on that first visit? Oh, my Lord. Uh What's new? <laughs> What's new? What have you been doing? <laughs> what is this like? Basically, I, I wanted to find out from the time that he left high school or the time he moved out of our neighborhood to the time now. So he had a lot of stories to tell and what was going on with his life. And and so it was a lot of listening and understanding for those visits. What was your like? What was your impression of him when you met him? What kind of man was he? Well, when he was growing up, he was a very skinny kid. You know, he had like little toothpick legs, and he was very skinny. So when I come and see this guy, he's a man. He's completely built out. He's been lifting weights, and he's just a bigger guy. But I knew him as the boy, and I knew what was inside of him of the person that he, that I knew him as. No, he was a criminal. You know, he would tell me about the story about the woman who actually urinated on on herself and I'm like that's that's just unbelievable and she probably will never be able to be in certain type of jobs that require that. That that's the part I didn't like. How it affected other people. You know, I could tell by the way he walked and all the rest of that that uh, he was becoming institutionalized hmm. is what is the verb that police officers like uh, uh, using a lot. What does that mean? Basically, it means that um, you have to develop uh, a whole different persona, a physical presence. Um, and basically, wherever you walk, you throw a 360-degree field of awareness around you because you never know when you're going to be attacked from behind and all the rest of that. You walk with... Uh, a gate of um, a predator, for all intents and purposes, to go and dissuade any potential predators from attacking you. So you walk with a purpose. You walk uh, to let anybody know that uh, don't mess with you, kind of a thing. And I had, I expected that to happen with Joe. One day during the visits, and he's telling me these stories, and... I just asked him straight out. I'm like, is this the life you want for yourself? Do you want to keep doing crime inside the prison so that you stay in there forever? You know, the clothing he wore was um, almost like a Mexican mafia uniform. He dressed the part. He had to join them for personal protection. It wasn't a choice with him. Hmm. He really had no choice. I've kind of felt sorry for him because uh, I was hearing stories about how... uh, you know, you have to uh, answer to a hierarchy form of authority above you. I mean, you have to do whatever they tell you to do. And I was kind of afraid that pretty soon they were going to um, demand something of Joe that he couldn't provide. I just told him, I go, you're too smart for that. You're just too smart for that. Why would you, you want to do that? I'm like, you're smarter than that. 
And I think bit by bit by bit, that was the change in him. I was just trying to help him know that he didn't belong there. We'll be right back. Part 3. The Basement Joe, let me ask you, it sounds like you're getting in pretty deep. Did you really know, like really understand what you were getting into? No, federal prison, I didn't know what I was getting into. I wasn't prepared for it in a lot of ways. I wasn't prepared for the kind of crimes I could get away with behind bars there. I knew... Basic things like, you know, you can make weapons, you can get drugs smuggled in. In the feds, everything was a hustle. Everything, it was an economy, man. Guys would smuggle paint from the sign factory and a little, it looked like a page from a book of silkscreen so that on the weekends, they would print a helmet logo of NFL teams on T-shirts. So on the weekend there for five packs of cigarettes, they would sell these T-shirts to guys who would wear those T-shirts to watch their football game. So like there is this whole operation of these underground T-shirts being made. And then the, the you know, the, the wardens started uh, confiscating it, but like everyone was trying to make a hustle and money and that kind of stuff was always being done, right? I saw things I didn't expect to see. I mean, stuff that... You would see on TV and things like that's impossible. Like I saw a guy get lit on fire in his cell. And I could see it from my window. It was late at night. And he just went up. His hair went up. And he was screaming in his cell. And then the cell next to him, it went up. But the guy wasn't on fire. It was just parts of his bed were on fire. And then the third cell next to us, some guy had been in there squirting acetone in the cells at night when they were sleeping. And the guy was walking down the tier. And he just lit them on fire. I remember watching that and thinking, shit, that could happen here too. <laughs> I know stabbing's gonna happen. I know you get choked out. I know somebody could come and strangle you with a with a with a sheet, turn it into a rope. I know a bunch of things could happen here and there. And I'm finally watching this and I'm like, shit, they could light you on fire too. God damn. But it was and it was dark and it was beautiful night out. It was clear. And that cell just lit up it was a weird it was a surreal place 
Some guys, they wanted to lock themselves in their cell because they didn't want to get transferred to another prison. So we would all slide over all our books and anything weapons we had so these guys could, like, lock themselves in their cells. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular. They tried to open the door, and it would just, and it wouldn't open. He had jammed it really tight. And then he had put paper up on the window part so they couldn't see in. And he says, come on in. I got two knives and I got a knife in each hand. Let's do this. So um, they brought a guy to, to a welder in to like <laughs> remove the door off the track. Meanwhile, there's like five or six stormtrooper cops behind him with like umpire vest and mask, like an umpire mask. And they got gloves and they're just like they got they got all this padding on them because they're going to go in there and they're going to they're going to extract him. And the welder's yelling, he's he's dumping water because there's these holes in the door. And he kept throwing water on the side to douse the flame because he has water in his sink and he has water in his toilet. So they turned the water off. And he exhausted his water supply, right? So, and he they start doing it again. I mean, this is like going on and on and on and on. And finally, like, oh, you're going to turn the water off? Fuck you, motherfuckers. You think you got me? Motherfuckers, I got something for your ass. <laughs> He's yelling for me. I think it's crazy. The welder's going on, and then finally there's more water. All of a sudden, there's more water. Where did he find the water? And the, ah, the welder jumps back. He's throwing his piss <laughs> He's throwing his piss on me. So, like, that guy, they ended up getting him out of there, you know, because he only had so much piss. And they took the welding door off, and they beat the fuck out of him. And when they they hog-tied him to a big, long hole. And I remember when they dragged him out. It was one of those moments in prison where I was just like, it was stunning to see what they could do to us. They could just get away with it. I mean, they went in there, and they had a chance And they did. When he walked out, he looked like he was barely alive. How he could breathe, I couldn't even tell. But, yeah, he lived, fortunately. Prison's a chaos. It just really is total chaos. I mean, guys would squirt shit on guards when they would come to feed them. If they were mad at them, they they got a shampoo bottle and they put some of their shit in there, stirred it up, and just... And there would be this long stream of shit chasing a guard off the tier. Like, it was It was madness. It was crazy. At that level, guys just didn't care. And then one day, um, Angel moves to his own single cell. I get a cellmate in. And um, whatever, I get this guy. He moves to another cell across from me on the first tier. And then um, uh, one day... The cell gets locked down. I'm outside in the yard. I don't know what's going on. Um, Victor Agee, I told you put a pin in that dude's name, come back to Victor Agee. When he drives up to the prison and he was two cells down from me, I remember he was one of the, he was one of the few times I actually saw or heard a guy get raped. These um, African-American guys from Washington, D.C., like six or seven, just run in there and before he can say anything they're just on top of him and it's just it te- they tear him up sad 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 terrible and everyone knew he was in trouble because he because he's a security risk because he escaped he has to stay in the six maximum security penitentiaries around the country he can only be in those prisons so he could tell them hey you can't keep me and they're like okay we'll send you to another prison now you're a snitch 
and you'll get messed. <laughs> like you can't. You he's stuck, stuck like Chuck. The only way a guy like Victor Ag can get out of this situation is if he witnesses some serious crime, and then he says, "I'll turn state witness for the serious crime." So, uh, my ex cellmate's murdered. The guy who came in right after Angel. I'm in the yard. I don't know what's going on. They lock down the unit. They bring us all in from the yard. They bring all the guys in from the for who had all been working that day. We're all in the gymnasium, and then we're all in the um, in the auditorium, and then we all got to eat. So they take us all to lunch. And we're, while we're at lunch, I get pulled out of there, and they arrest me. I'm the first guy arrested. They found some clothes and some blood on them in my thing, which ended up being nothing, but it ended up being it's a, a cut and whatever. But they found it. Ah, let's pull them up. So I would have been cleared of that pretty quickly when they found the blood had nothing to do with anything. But Victor Ag sees me get arrested, and Victor Ag says, "Oh, I saw Joe nearby, <laughs> near that cell," and he gets escorted out of the prison that day, and he's gone. He doesn't have to get raped again. And now I'm locked in this thing. And then for the rest of the day, I, I hear it. I'm in solitary confinement. And for the rest of the day, they're pulling up one Mexican after the other. And every Mexican who gets pulled up, we none of us had anything to do with it. But all of them were owed money for drugs. All of, so people get to use that opportunity. You find it all the time. Something like that goes on, you could say, I think it's I think Shorty had something to do with it. And you owe Shorty a hundred bucks, guess what? You're not gonna ever have to pay Shorty those hundred bucks. And it all what did it cost you? I think Shorty had something to do with it. Oh, I think Tony from from Wilmas, I think he had something to do with it, and you owe Tony like two hundred bucks. That's how you get guys off the line. And they say they'll just pull them up and, and take them out. Two years later, the guy who actually had done the killing and stayed out in the population, general population, uh, he just got himself in trouble, talked too much, and people told on him. So uh, that's how that happened. For That's how I got there, because somebody said that they saw me and got me in trouble. And then, so how is it different being in solitary than being in general population? Solitary is, uh, uh, actually, there's two things about it. It's, I was taken first into the SHU, which is a special housing unit. 23 hours a day, you're in your cell. Uh, you get three... Five days a week, Monday through Friday, you get an hour of recreation. And in the entire week, you get uh, three showers. Okay, so that's the shoe. But they have double cells in the shoe sometimes. So solitary is when you're actually in a cell by yourself alone. And so I, I'm not always clear on this, and I think I need to be clear with people on this one. I wasn't in solitary the entire two years. I was uh, in a cell with another guy. I think... Um, I don't know, four or five months, something like that. I got out of my handcuffs at one point and stabbed a guy in solitary confinement. And so... Wait wait a second, let's back up. So you got out of your handcuffs and you stabbed somebody? Sounds... sounds it, it sounds, sounds more extreme. James Bonney <laughs> than it is. Yeah, no, I, I didn't like a guy. He didn't like me. We, we were talking shit to each other. And so I was under the impression when we were like, okay, let's meet out in the rec yard. So I had a cellmate, he had a cellmate. And what they would do is the guards would come in, they would open all this, the food trap doors and all the cells of all the guys who were going to come out to wreck. 
he and I were going to go down there um, and then we were going to have it out. Well, they open up the food traps and all the doors of guys who are going to go out to wreck. You stand there with your hands behind your back. A guard comes and he handcuffs you through this little slot. He handcuffs you. He opens your door. He has an open cell 12. The door opens. You step out and you go wait towards the front of the tier. Um, and there's guards moving out. They're doing this. And then they close the tier and they go to the next cell. They don't. Nobody's walking you over there. So there's for a minute, there's a guy's just moving around the cell. We're all handcuffed behind our back. And so I saw him get out of his cell, walk over to another cell with his hands behind his back and that door was open and I saw a guy slide a knife into his back with his hand so I knew he was going to stab me wow the difference between me and him is I did the same move to a friend of mine but a friend of mine didn't just put a knife in my hand he unhandcuffed me so this guy's walking over all cool, hiding the knife under, you know, in his clothing as he's walking back, hands behind his back. And he's thinking, we're going to get unhandcuffed and then he's going to make a move on me. Well, I don't wait for that. I now have a weapon. I have no handcuffs on me. And so I go over there where he's standing. I think he's all cool. I'm walking up to him. I kick him in the balls. He bends over and boom, boom. I just stab him real quick. There's a big commotion because he falls. And I'm able to get that knife through one of those open slots to somebody else. And that's it. I get taken out of there. We get taken. I get taken to solitary confinement. I don't just get taken to solitary confinement. I get taken to the basement of solitary confinement. Everyone down there was hardcore. It was um, guys who had killed other men in the prison. And, you know, escape artists. Like, it was a heavy group, crew of guys. It was probably the guys, the heaviest crew of guys I ever did time with. There was 14 cells. Yeah, that was when I went that was terrible that was terrible this is episode 11 of the bank robber diaries second time in it's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leone. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing is by Johnny Vincennes and Eric Romani. Next up is episode 12, The Cracks in the Wall. Stay tuned. <laughs>